Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I'm the host of the show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders themselves and experts in the field of self-leadership, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello, welcome to the Legendary Leaders podcast. I'm delighted to have you all here again. And as always, I've lined up a brilliant guest with a different angle today for you. We are talking about creativity, innovation, design thinking, and how we actually define and interpret innovation in nowadays world. It's something that's very important to think differently, to explore different pathways, perhaps be quicker in recreating or in inventing completely a different process system approach. Because what we have done so far doesn't quite work anymore. But how can we actually do this? And I thought, hey, today I'm going to talk to someone who actually is far more knowledgeable in this space than I am, because I used to be someone who says creativity is for those who know and like the arts and who are naturally and perhaps professionally creative people. But realized very quickly that's BS, right? And there's so much more to it. And actually everybody can be creative and innovative. So today I'm very delighted to welcome Dean Myers. And Dean is a design thinking and innovation trainer, a coach, a consultant, and he has been teaching people how to apply visual thinking and design thinking in particular in technology since the Macintosh arrived on desktops with the first graphical users interface. And he tells a really funny story about teaching others how to use a mouse really old school, traditional mouse and how that has actually been a challenge at this point of time as well. He has employed techniques including graphic facilitation and Lego serious play to help entrepreneurs, startups, managers and C-suite decision makers to better work, build stronger teams and become more than design thinkers. They are design doers. His motto is be brave and iterate. Dean is one of the uh, authors of the world of visual facilitation and publishes the online news media outlet uh, visworld.com and is on the faculty of the American Management Association. So as you notice, he knows his stuff. So why should we not just listen to him? So pop over and I speak to you again in a moment. In this case, I'm going to say hello and welcome, Dean. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and I really appreciate the uh, the invitation to chat. Well, I appreciate you coming on to the show. I have to giggle while saying it because we had a few attempts, all my fault. That shows when I'm getting a bit frazzled and a bit overwhelmed and my calendar is going nuts. No, I am not in control of it anymore. So I appreciate you being here at a very early hour, dialing in from a beautiful New York, aren't you? Yes, absolutely. We're, we're doing a sheet. We're doing. It's funny, interesting. You call it beautiful New York, and it's it's a strange city in in terms of. I think people always think of it as, you know, the heart the heart of finance and so on and so forth. And then in the movies, of course, Central Park and things like that. But um, it's beautiful in many ways. <laughs> in in which ways is it beautiful for you? I'll be honest. Frankly, the energy level of the city. For me, that's a beautiful thing. I'm very, very pulled and drawn to, to energy. Um, so it's the, the motion and the sense of possibility and change 
that I really love about about this place. I'm a native, born and raised here, although I've lived in for long periods of time elsewhere. But I keep getting drawn back. Mm, I get that. It's one of the places I'd love to live at, at least for a certain period of time. Also based on the energy, by the way. Ah, there you um, go. I have no connection to the financial district or to downtown or anything like that. I just love the vibe, the diversity, the energy, the sense of possibilities, the jazz clubs as well. Ah, um, yes. Yeah, just just a melting pot of diversity. I love that. Mm -hmm. it, it really is. Yeah. But you have a melting pot of diversity to offer as well. I mean, I if do. I just <laughs> look at your background, right? Trained opera singer, music composer, graphic um, facilitator, design thinker. And I'm pretty sure you can add a few more things to it. It's incredible. So, so I'm very curious to know what led you to onto your path and what helped you get to where you are now? Let's see. It's interesting. I always think of myself in a certain way as of having multiple paths, but I think it's really more like multiple lanes. You know, if you look at the, and I'm a, you know, a visual person, of course. So if you talk, if you talk in terms of not a single path, but swim lanes yeah. <laughs> towards, I don't know what, but, you know, moving forward. Uh, when I was a kid, I was absolutely, completely fascinated by by music, music and performing. Uh, I also was terribly drawn to draw. And so I, I really was sure I would have a life in the arts. I wanted to have a professional life in the arts. As I say, the, the, both from the creative side, so not just playing music, for instance, but actually composing music, which I, I started to do when, uh, when I was 10, 11, 12 and uh, various genres that's another thing too I, I i liked pop music and i liked all of that but i absolutely adored and loved classical music and particularly was drawn to opera and, and particular opera singers and so on and so forth which drew me into not just the composing idea but the the idea of performing and i did start performing uh at a semi-professional level when i was a teenager and well, I had to figure out how was I going to make money to pay for the voice lessons and all of that kind of stuff. And how could I shift into using my quote unquote artistic skills so that I could do something that wouldn't be onerous. So I wound up moving into doing things that would allow me to do that. So marketing and advertising were very natural places. And then oddly enough, I seem to discover this innate skill at uh, we'll call it problem solving through using uh, computers i don't know what else to call it because i didn't go and take computer courses and things like that but i bought a personal computer back in the day and i taught myself <laughs> heavy pro some heavy programming languages and started to apply it to marketing um, uh, i was working for a newspaper and you know drew the hatred of the sales force because I was suddenly analyzing their <laughs> analyzing their impact using a, a glorified word processor. So but this is pre-spreadsheet. Pre oh, what is that? It was, well, it was an Olivetti device that was an automated word processing machine, but it also had the ability to do mathematical computations and churn out what we would now call spreadsheets. So I had like a 30 character display and I would input all of the sales. We had a sales team of eight. Yeah. And I would input their paper sales, you know, tickets into this thing and it would churn out a weekly report on their activity. They hated me. Wow. I mean, I can't even imagine anymore doing all of that manual work to input data in order to get reports. It's, it seems like a lifetime ago that people had to do that. Right, 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 right. And I'm not implying here you're of old age. Uh, it just shows how much and how fast technology is yeah. changing and progressing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So y you are currently finding yourself again in swim lanes, as you have described it. I love this expression. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a bit of a transition as well. So if we start with 
how you support others at the moment, what would you say is your focus area? My focus area is title-wise. I function mostly as a professional uh, facilitator uh, and secondarily as a coach. And I, I really try to point out, I, I call myself a transformational coach mm -hmm. because I have uh, such concentration on design thinking and innovation. And I believe firmly that the whole, the whole purpose of doing anything with a design thinking bent is to, is to encompass an understanding of the people that you're trying to provide service to and for as well as with. <laughs> and, so, and so it just bleeds over naturally that if you're going to have this human-centered design focus, that the same thing in my, in my coaching, that, that uh, I, I don't just call it leadership coach. I can do leadership coaching and I can do life coaching, but I think that uh, we're, not, you know, we're not separated down the middle or sliced up in pieces. You know, body, mind, and spirit, we are you know, we are an entity, we are a whole as a person. And frankly, that's, that's what's important to approach in thinking about what is design thinking supposed to encompass and what, is in a, what should innovation really affect, right? Disruptive innovation should affect real disruption across the, across the, across the lines uh, of, of who we are and what we do. So, To use the term facilitator, it means to make easy, right? That's from facile, uh, that root. And in, in those terms, it allows me also to cross industries and even different types of things that would sit in different business lines. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you talk about the broad, <laughs> the broad bent of things, I've worked with uh, and do work with everything from military to government to nonprofits, to oh, all kinds of private industry. Products, products some, services uh, a lot, and um, even operations. So as, as you said, you know, swim lanes is, is a good word. And I find, um, I, try to make the, I try to make the barriers or the membranes uh, very thin between between these different things, you know. What made me initially very curious about your bio, your profile when I came across it was the design thinking innovation approach. Mm. And I've said this on the show before, often innovation is being described as you have to be uh, the innovator of new products and, right. you know, change literally or reinvent the wheel and you have to be this highly creative person. And to be creative means, again, to be into the arts and all of this shebang. And there's so much more to innovation. I remember a coachee of mine saying, I hardly ever use the word innovation anymore. I talk about how to innovate. So given that you are working in this space and helping others in this space as well, what's innovation to you? Wow. It's a big question. It is a very big question because I think uh, innovation is – a change in state, bluntly, a change of state, which is not temporary and typically will be for the betterment of those who are affected by that change. I know that's a really broad statement, isn't yes. it? Yes. And that's why I say it's really hard to define because, you know, uh, I, I like this idea that, that you can try and categorize and I don't have them memorized. I think there's, you know, some people say there's seven types of innovation and some say there are 10 and so on and so forth. But the whole point is that when you look at all of them, as I say, there is always this, this change, uh, a change of state that whatever is being done or whatever happens or whatever the, you know, quote unquote product is, it will not return back to what it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think also The difference between disruption and innovation is that, um, and disruption, again, disruption is part of it, the change of state, uh, but disruption implies, although it does apply disorder, right, disrupt, uh, will imply disorder, that um, innovation will also imply that it will create a new order, 
right? And that's why I say it's a change of state that's going to be the way going forward. So, so those kind of so there are innovations, and so if you look at uh, uh, what became defined as um, turning innovation into um, uh, a continuum of there's a type one or horizon one or horizon two and horizon three as a way of frankly helping settle the mind of those who are risk averse in large industry and <laughs> government and so forth you know there was a context for why to break apart how business operates that horizon two innovation is the saving grace for those who are afraid of that complete and total uh, change of the world order, yeah. as it were. And Horizon 2 is comes out of the idea from lean world of continuous improvement, right, which is also tied into agile and thinking, so on and so forth. So, so as I say, there are shades within innovation, and I think that's also part of the confusion. Like, is it really, is it evolutionary or is it innovative? You know, you hear that kind of argument. And I do think that I do think that evolutionary changes can result in innovation over time. It can be a slow process. And then there is that innovation that happens. I like to say innovation or change can happen with as little as a single email from the CEO. <laughs> Boom. We're doing we're doing it this way. <laughs> Tomorrow. Yes, for example, or just a shift in his or her language and her approach, becoming less formal, for example, that can create a whole change of the state in a more positive sense as well. So Absolutely. it can have both a positive as well as a negative impact, can't it? Well, there is always, you know, there is always the the negative impact uh, in the, in the degree that it's a change of state, right? Mm -hmm. And and that means that yes, there is going to be chaos at some level uh if you if you know any of the you know the the kinefin theory theoretical framework uh which has these different sort of chambers that uh that things uh, you know that that systems live in and you know the worst quote unquote worst for us as human beings mm -hmm. you know the, is the chaotic state mm -hmm. where where there is it isn't even a question of whether it's not a, it's familiar. It's just that there is no reliable pattern to follow yeah. uh, in a chaotic state. And so, yes, disruption—that kind of that kind of innovation will cause that kind of disruption. That some people will will feel as if it is, you know, that simple state as you say, where changing language usage such a massive disruption for some people. It, it can throw people amazingly off of course let's stick with innovation for a little bit longer you can't really you can't really separate it from design thinking necessarily and right. we, we will talk about design thinking in a moment as well however we are living in a world that can be perceived as highly ambiguous uncertain right and coming out of of covid as well i think there was a lot of change of state to be seen and noticed uh, in the world that, that I'm working in. And I still hear many of my clients speaking about the need for innovation, thinking and acting differently, but very much, and I do get it, struggling with actually doing it, right? Ah, Stepping yes. well, into perhaps a chaotic state, uh, being comfortable with not knowing everything. But at the same time, there's a belief that innovation, doing things differently is, is needed, is required. Yeah. So, so what's your perception? What are some of the challenges your coaches, the groups you are working with, bring uh, into the room? Well, there is the natural human state that is always there of, and I brought out the word, uh, the, those two words before, risk averse. Mm -hmm. There is there is a natural level of us that is risk averse, and there are types of situations that we will feel more risk averse than others. And then there are types of businesses, as it were, where you have to be more and more and more risk averse because of the uh, inherent dangers that come from, you know, not being clear on the consequences of, of actions. So as I say, I walk into situations and that's why I brought out, you know, <laughs> this wide range of people uh, and, and groups that I work with and if you notice, I almost categorize them from 
the highest risk to quote unquote lowest risk. Yeah, we started um, with the military, didn't we? We did indeed. And yeah. I did it intentionally because as I say, let me just paint the scenario that as a facilitator or as a coach, right? You know, typically facilitator will be with the groups. Coaching will be uh, typically with single individuals and they have slightly different processes, even though there are intentionally pretty much the same kind of outcomes that we're looking for. In order for me to say that I can do those that job as facilitator or coach, then there are certain things I have to set up and that's what I have to respect. So I have to create the quote unquote safe environment for people to be able to manage uncertainty, ambiguity, and risk, which are they're pretty much really in a lot of ways the same thing. The, I mean, I want to focus on those things first. That's sort of the first step. And ironically, when you look at the work of Patrick Lencioni and others who talk mm -hmm. about what, you know, what forms, how to do team formation, how to create a healthy and positive environment for, for someone to basically learn, work, and that bottom layer at the bottom of everything is trust. So I have to, I have to create the environment for individuals and groups to function at a profound level of trust in order to face ambiguity, uncertainty, <laughs> you know, the VUCA stuff. Yeah, the VUCA um, stuff. <laughs> yeah, but the VUCA stuff is, is, you know, it's a great acronym and, and it does evoke all of this, you know, all of this pushback and the lockdown and that risk diversity and all of that. That's top of mind for me uh, with, with the, that first uh, handshake with an individual, if it's a handshake or, or a bow or an online wave hello, you know, working in the kind of environments you can, you can work in and then also going in to, to do any kind of group work. Uh, always have to, you know, that baseline is we have to have a level of, we have to have a level of trust between us. Which very much applies to any leadership role or any Absolutely. human interaction as well, if we want to be very generic about it, right? The, yeah. the key is this feeling of safety, psychological safety, the trust. That's right. I can actually speak up. I mean, how can you create any innovative thinking if you can't openly share thoughts, perspectives, ideas, challenge one another? I mean, you immediately build up so many limitations right away. Yeah. And so it's it's a key point for leadership as well as to whether you work in a very innovative environment or not. But there are quite a few other ones um, that are required in particular in order to build this more design thinking, innovative way of uh, changing the state of something or someone. Correct. So moving moving into moving into some of the very human tools that we need attitudinally, and also we talk a lot about the word empathy. Um, so, so I like to be a contrarian in some ways and say, well, empathy in the common definition is okay, but in a way, it's almost not enough. I'm sure many who will be listening. Uh, or watching will say, well, you know, there is empathy and there's sympathy. And I know it's not sympathy where you feel sorry for that other person, but you still hold this position of, of sort of distance. And so therefore, um, many, many biases come into play when you're using sympathy and with empathy, you're, uh, you're walking in their shoes and so on and so forth. I think it's a little bit different in that it's some ways easy to have empathy for an individual. And so a lot of our design thinking activities, we try and break it down to the individual. But I think it's, I think it's almost a, um, I wanna turn it on its side. And I think it's important almost to have more, and engineers will love me for saying this. It's mm -hmm. almost, it's not just the emotional component of connecting to the experience. It's potentially connecting to the experience uh, yes, and then add on this uh, uh, a curiosity. I think it's I think it's so important to have curiosity and almost um, uh, almost a real urge 
to do something better with it. With what exactly? Well, that's the thing. What is the it, right? Is it a system? Is it a product? Is it a, frankly, you know, is it just a concept? Is it a service? You know, it's this, and, and this is where we launch into the, the how might we stuff that now has become very characterized as design thinking is the how might we, right? How do you turn into a design thinker? Well, you turn on that curiosity, that fascination, even if it's just momentary, that concentration, and inside say, how might I, right? Not just how might we, but 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 have have I call it have skin in the game, have that internal desire to to do something different. That's where a question comes up for me, right? And the question mm -hmm. is, let me see how I express that in the best way. How do I know as an individual who is maybe not the most experienced design thinker, mm -hmm. when I'm trying to do something or change something for the sake of changing something, or for the sake of actually doing something better with it. You know, but that wasn't really precise. I know where you're getting at, right. But reinventing the wheel for the sake of reinventing the wheel, or actually there's true purpose in it. Or have I already gotten in the way of design thinking by asking this question? Well, I think, I think design thinking has been around for a very long time, but discerning what we are now calling, quote unquote, design thinking, which I think was a modification from this idea of human-centered design, right? I think if the impetus is directed towards improving it, quote-unquote, for not just for its own sake, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's design. That's creating for its own sake. That's, but for, uh, for the impetus of uh, improving it for the utility of others in service to others mm -hmm. right i think that's the second piece of the of the what the design what design thinking is mm -hmm. as opposed to just being quote unquote creative or inventive or so on and so forth mm -hmm. so can you call and i may have said this to you before can you call thomas edison a design mm -hmm. thinker absolutely did he call himself a design thinker no no the term didn't exist but the interesting thing where we might argue is that was Edison attempting to improve on either the quality of life or approach something with the intention of serving others, right? Or servicing a, a particular person besides his own, his own ego needs, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Was it supposed to have utility or was it, or was it not? Uh, was it, quote unquote, for just um, self-expression, purposes of self-expression? You know, would it define a difference between designing for, quote unquote, art, which I think there's a thin line, mm -hmm. or designing for the, ser you know, to serve others, the needs of others, or use of others? But I'm getting deeper into the definition now, right? I'm making it longer, longer, longer. Yeah, but you know what? This definition actually um, helped me quite a lot. Serving others. Mm -hmm. How can we change a state or proof something that helps and supports others? That's in service. I really, I really like that. Why my face went or my eyes went up a little bit was you mentioned Edison. And I was thinking about, oh, Dean told me something about the hive approach about a story about the hives that he used. Right. And you are the better person to share it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward is that everybody thinks of, and there are photographs, of course, uh, because of, you know, Edison was a magnificent marketer and publicist. And there are pictures of Edison studiously listening to this first recording device. The first recording is his voice reciting, Mary had a little lamb him with the light bulb, him, 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 mm. you know, the inventor, the great, so on and so forth. And and that's unfortunately carried on to 
Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and so on and so forth. You know, these are these are brilliant inventors, and and this is not to denigrate their their skills and what they've done. However, and I point out these three because you know we are talking about different periods of time, and yet all three of these have used a in order to achieve what we'll call you know uh, H3. Uh, blue sky innovation, they have all employed teams, teams of uh, crafty, clever, brilliant, high risk taking individuals who have worked as teams in groups forming these essentially hives. So Edison bought up uh, a bunch of plants, uh, you know, manufacturing style plants, and he set up a couple of buildings mm-hmm. that were um separated by it kind of had a ring road so that they could all go back and forth between the different buildings in order to in order to do this this combinatory quick rapid scientific process of of playing and testing over and over again and it was they were like hives they were like you know big beehives that's that analogy i drew Jobs is famous for having gathered together a whole bunch of engineers and sticking them in a building and putting a pirate flag on top of the building. And it was a secret project, which became the revolutionary innovation, which was the the Macintosh computer, which I'm very proud to say that I worked at Apple as the first sales and tech rep for the Caribbean region <laughs> was the title at the launch of the Macintosh. And let me tell you, Figuring out how to teach people how to use this thing called a mouse, that was innovation. <laughs> oh, tell, tell us more about that. Well, it was very, uh, it was very simple. I realized, this is, uh, you know, there were no training manuals. They just handed me this thing, this device. <laughs> it was this box, and it had a little portable keyboard. It had a tiny little uh, black and white, well, you know, gray scale screen on it. And this, this thing right that they called a mouse and uh, it was up to me to design design programs for groups to come in a room and learn how to navigate the gui the graphic user graphical user interface what the heck is that and <laughs> great i have icons on the screen one looks like a trash bucket well uh, <laughs> it's like all of that you know so 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 the experience was great for me because again coming from being a composer and a performer and a creative artist is like so i'm going to invent right i'm going to innovate uh learning by having them do this kinesthetic right i'm not going to show them slides i'm going to teach i'm going to i'm going to make it experiential teaching you know you're all going to learn how to 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 use the mouse and i said well it's kind of like you know instead of you because of the way the trackball was built you know it was meant so that it could work in a very small area this one by the way is is essentially upside down right that's the the idea of the trackball upside down on, so- on what i what i personally like to use the ball is on the top and i use my finger to navigate instead of turning the mouse where the the ball would be rolling yeah. around the table yeah I didn't invent that as, you know, it's advice has been around, but I prefer it. But the point being, I had to explain to people, and I realize I'm sort of going down the deep well, but I said, well, the, the mouse is on the table, and in order, you don't have to drag the mouse beyond where, you know, where it physically you think it's supposed to be. You can just, just like using a hairbrush, right? Like you brush your hair. Well, the ball inside will keep rolling. So just, just go as far as you would brush your hair. <laughs> which means you had to familiarize yourself with it first being right, experiential I had to, about it and then right and then i had to figure out being a visual thinker what are visual metaphors and kinesthetic metaphors that i can use to teach with i find it uh, an interesting story or there is an interesting story out there that i read the other day and don't ask me anymore where it was um <laughs> it was about one of the first phones with which you could take pictures. And I don't know if it was the first iPhone or not, but it was all about biases in innovation process. Ah, okay. And it was the story about taking pictures and a large chunk of the pictures was uploaded incorrectly. 
And the reason was, and it wasn't as fancy where you can turn your phone and then the, the picture will turn as well and so on. It was all very static at this point of time. Pictures being that the developers of the photo function were right-handers, basically, and mm -hmm. people who were left-handed weren't able to properly use it. So it was a bit all over the place. And I was I was just trying to put myself into their shoes and I thought, but you could still probably push the button and get it sorted somehow. But it must have been very clunky and obviously it didn't work. And, and yeah. I found it very interesting to be mindful of our own biases, how we would use something and um, what we believe might be the right thing to do before we step into any decision making about a new state. As to whether that's a process, product, service, it, it doesn't matter. Absolutely. And and you caught me out because I left out one piece of it. I'm ambidextrous, but predominantly left-handed. Mm -hmm. And so, as I say, when I was developing my talk and so on and so forth, I realized that although I naturally would go to use the mouse with my uh, dominant hand, because my dominant hand for uh, fine... Uh, you know, there's, there's gross motor skills and fine motor skills. My dominant hand for uh, fine motor skills is my left. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I started to work on using the mouse for myself left-handed. Mm -hmm. And I realized that as a, because I was going to do this experiential thing, which meant that people were going to quote unquote mirror and so on and so forth, that I needed to shift into being a right-handed mouser. So to this day, I'm a, an, you know what time, you know what year the mouse was first used, or you might not, but it, it started with an eight. Uh, the decade was the 80s. I'll say that much. So I, oh. so people get very confused when they see me typically mousing with one hand and writing with the other at the same time. They're like, yeah. what is going on? With this? How do you do that? <laughs> That. I want to move. I want to Sorry. move us. No, just like playing the piano. That's all. You play with both hands. Yeah, that's why I'm really not good at playing the piano. Seriously, I always admire people like drummers, for example, play different rhythms in two different hands, and I'm like, how the heck are you doing this? This is incredible practice yeah <laughs> it can be done i promise you <laughs> are you drumming as well no i don't i don't drum i play other instruments though yeah yes I, I i believe so it can be done and i throw out the assumption slash theory that everybody can be a design thinker what do you think about that absolutely i think everybody who is able to employ these the processes can become a design thinker. So as I said, if you can turn your attention and your focus, not that you necessarily have to, quote unquote, deeply feel the emotion of the other person, but if you have to put yourself in the mindset that your purpose, intent, and activity will be towards the service of that other person, you emotionally may not make the connection to that other person. And as I say, we've, we've pushed so hard about having empathy, having empathy, walking in their shoes, understanding their feelings and so on and so forth. I said, okay, I, yes, that's a very, that's a very handy way of saying how to get the focus off your own ego and your own needs and so on and so forth. That does not, for instance, as you say, it does not remove your biases. Mm -hmm. Just, to, just because you quote unquote feel their emotions. And so therefore you have empathy mm -hmm. for them does not remove your biases. And so your biases will affect the design. Mm -hmm. Now, if your purpose though is to serve them in as best intent, then you then with intent, you can go back through your design and say, now, wait a minute, does this completely serve them or are there things in here that will get in the way? And so, as I say, it can be very much a quote unquote mechanical quote unquote process. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think there's this there's this a little bit of a, an almost an argument over well what is the right design thinking process you know do you do double d the double diamond one do you do you know so on and so forth and i think i may point that out i have a book this fellow named robert uh, Curdale, who's published and i have in my hands the fourth edition of design thinking process and methods most extensive guide available mapping techniques mapping techniques step by step processes 
step-by-step methods. And I think this, again, this is another one of these 700-page books. There's um, Innovation Methods Mapping, uh, which comes from G.K. Van Patten, you know, a, a, a great sense maker. So there's no one way. There's no one true answer. And um, that means that, yeah, there's a lot of wiggle room for, for people to find their way into being design thinkers and not feeling, uh, not having imposter syndrome. You know? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not going to let you off the hook here. Sure. <laughs> so I, wanna, okay. I would like to give a, an example of a process to the people. So especially I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm working quite frequently with newly formed agile teams. Okay. Right, that may sh- uh, reshift on a regular basis. Have different leaders, hardly ever see each other, and so on and so forth. And they have a purpose to change certain processes, um, to invent whatever it is. And design thinking is often being brought up, but there's a almost a big question mark of what does it truly entail. Ah, okay. And B, what does it require from me as an individual contributor, but also from one of the leaders, and I say deliberately one of the leaders, in this agile construct? Because okay. there are usually more than one. And so I'm curious to hear about perhaps some of your experiences that you may have had in a similar space or anything you can share with us, How what, what the first steps would be and what it truly entails. Sure. I, I would say that the first thing, of course, is is a uh, a commitment to attempt to go through a process, any process you like, <laughs> which comes out of one of these cookbooks or uh, maybe a course or a class you've taken that uh, that we'll call, you know, is design human centered, design focused, mm-hmm. and um, follows that that line of thinking. It can even be we'll call it. Um, is a very common one, a very popular one that's put out in the Agile community is a design sprint, right? The Google design sprint, in my mind, is absolutely design thinking uh, process, right? And so, therefore, it has a- a- these very specific tasks that you go through. Typically, almost all of what we would call design thinking or human-centered design processes start with an exploratory right? A discovery phase, an investigation of the, the landscape and, of course, the stakeholders. And then we start to go into uh, defining the problem. So we spend a lot of time what we call the problem space, right? And so you see, I'm, I'm giving you a very broad, fantastic, broad outline of what the process would be. So with understanding context and environment, with understanding the stakeholders uh, with narrowing down to a problem, um, you know, a, a problem situation that you would like to focus on to attempt to create this change. You would then next move into, uh, once you've decided on the problem, you will then start to move into an ideation phase. That's the brainstorming. That's the freewheeling creativity. That's the answering Right, starting to come up with solutioning. From the solutioning, uh, there, there is then a convergence on a decision-making process to attempt to come up with something that you can quote-unquote prototype. This is very typical, and this is typical. Prototype is creating a small experiment of some form, and I'll put this in, that you can measure the results, <laughs> right? It's, it doesn't make any sense to just experiment for experimenting's sake. You have to measure against something. Yeah. And so from, from that measurement of the experiment, you will now make a decision. Are you ready to move forward into, uh, we'll call it larger scale production or full implementation? Or do you need to go back somewhere in the drawing board? And the drawing board can be all the way back to the problem statement. Do you need to move backwards because the results of the measurement were not satisfying the criteria that you wanted? And the criteria can be financial criteria. It can be safety criteria. It can be the, the ease with which to, <clears throat> to produce 
more than one, uh, you know, of this experiment, you know, weighing it against all those criteria, is it worth it to attempt to scale uh, or to pivot, right? In other words, completely ditch it, modify it, but pivot somehow. Yeah. And then the cycle, the cycle uh, continues again. It may not be a full cycle, may not be going all the way back to the initial users or, you know, people that you're attempting to serve. But it also, that's the other piece of it too. It has a, a continuous nature of being cyclical and unending. Isn't that one of your key slogans? Be brave and iterate. Be brave and iterate. We get there, yes. <laughs> I, I personally, A, I love the slogan and B, it, it adds the sense of ease to it. And what we discussed in the previous call as well is um, playfulness. Yeah. You know, be curious as well about the process and the outcomes and see how we where we need to iterate and how we can do it and then be curious again about the result i i think it creates a much bigger sense of openness absolutely it's it's very it it hopefully takes away a lot of the sting of you notice i i never say i don't say fail at all i don't say fail fast i just don't use that word there's too much emotional weight to it and and frankly to be honest <laughs> I've stood on stage and failed too many times. <laughs> so how did you iterate that one? <laughs> Next performance. You're as good as your last performance, but I be if you believe there'll be a next performance, you, you pick yourself up and you go on. But also you break down what happened, what went wrong, quote unquote. You know, in other words, you turn... I, I, that's why I say I don't turn it in. I don't use this idea of failure at all. I really think of it as, you know, scientific method that it's always an experiment and that it's always a learning situation. I think that's, as, as I say, it's the same thing about attitudinally like, oh, I have to be empathetic. I have to be emotionally connected with the user. I have to, and I'm, I, I, and this also comes out of, out of performance when it comes down to it. If you play the role of a killer, that's pretty heavy stuff. If you take it in so deeply that that then becomes everything about it, right? You have to, you have to, uh, you have to step back, right? I think, and I know I realize I'm sounding uh, quote unquote over emotional about it, but certainly, and I'll say again, working with extremely high risk, extremely high risk cases of doing, trying to apply design thinking in these most risky things, which, which involve human life. That's the highest risk that you can deal with. So how do you, how do you cope with that on the one side if you are, I'll put it to you this way, if you are so emotionally involved with thinking about that mm -hmm. or conversely, how do you deal with that in the service of others if you have no emotional connection yeah. with those who are on either side of that high risk, right? I mean, there are ethics involved. We have to think about ethics as well. I don't quite know how to get from this very heavy point, which is valuable <laughs> and important, to, to a question that I don't want to miss out on that yeah. considers playfulness. Yes. Because, because it's, it's right this what is you're perfect. saying. Yeah. I, I was actually um, running a workshop yesterday about thriving and how often emotions actually get in the way of thriving. And you highlighted in one of my um, questions that I sent you as a pre-questionnaire, being in flow gives you a lot of energy. You love to be in that state. And I think if you're over-emotional and you focus too much on oh, what went wrong and so on and so forth in a non-objective way, yeah. i.e. what you said, what did I learn from it? How can I do it differently next time? So, so I have to build a distance in between, right? Then it can get in the way of us thriving, still feeling all right to iterate, to do it again. And, you know, to experiment a little bit more with our own style and behavior and um, whatnot. Right. And, and I think it is a really important point. And that includes the sense of playfulness for me. Right. And, and when I watch my son, I never see him overthink as to whether he 
that's the one thing now or the other because he isn't trained in the way of overthinking. He just plays, he just does, he just right. builds stuff and it will fall over and then he tries it again. And I love that. And I wonder how we can, in particular, coming back to high-risk organizations or leadership in general, how we can create a sense of playfulness. I would say, and and it, as you probably noticed, you know, when my profile and so on and so forth, and I, I got certified in a process called Lego Serious Play. Mm-hmm. Uh, even with the with that book, the World of Visual Facilitation, where where I did a whole chapter um, on uh, different kinds of facilitation activities that are quote unquote visual yet not drawing, right? Uh, they really are focused on experiential stuff, mm-hmm. and I, t- I play was was key to it. And the, one of the key factors of play is that there is this inherent understanding that play itself implies that we will come out of the other side of whatever the quote-unquote end of play is intact, right? So there is trust and safety built into play, right? If you don't trust and if you don't feel safe, you, you're not playing. Mm-hmm. So whatever the process is or activity you have to invest as much of this playful spirit or this playful intent into it as possible and that's why using quote-unquote toys using things that we know you know are 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 safe that uh, we can we can break them and replace them or break them and put them back together and that we ourselves will come out intact and that we can even we can even find ways, you know, of iterating and doing it so that they come out more and more and more intact. You know, if the play is with uh, that, they are representational of real things. Yeah. So, so I would say that play doesn't have to necessarily playfulness. I think is that mindset as opposed to the specific whether we're doing Lego series play or we're sitting and having a meeting. And we're, you know, as I say, let's let's fantasize, um, you know, something that happened that was really tremendous in in five years' time. And so this is an activity I do a lot, and it's completely visual, uh, or rather, it's based on visual stuff. And it's, you know, we call it the cover story. You know, you guys won the greatest award ever for such and such a, a thing that you did. You know, because you streamlined your operational process. And got this to uh, to work so that it could be done in three days instead of seven, and that's five years from now. Now tell me the story. How did that happen? Who was involved? What processes did you go through? You know. So in other words, I I create the once upon a time scenario and I shift them into this playful way of thinking, without saying we're going to play a game. <laughs> Yeah. But, but that's really what I'm doing is I'm, I'm employing the elements of play. There's fantasy, there's the impossible can happen, there's, there's no real risk. You know, if you don't like that story, just play another round of the game. Yeah. And it's, again, coming back to the visuals, right? You're visualizing certain mm-hmm. outcomes mm-hmm. and going down that path towards mm-hmm. it. Right. Visualizing and storytelling. Mm-hmm. I want to add that in too. That's really important that processes, after all, are stories. So the creative process winds up being a matter of storytelling. And I think that's the other very important function that we have to focus on, that we are naturally storytellers. We're pattern makers, right? We create patterns in our mind to gain understanding of things. And that's focused a lot in the visual center of the brain. And we're storytellers, which helps create, quote unquote, order, organization and order, which makes us feel safe. All right. Another question popped up for me right now. You make me reflect quite a bit here in this conversation. And I know we are drawing slowly to an end, but if you don't mind, I would love to be curious again with you one more time. Sure. I notice that storytelling seems to be a challenge to a few people that um, I'm experiencing in large Mm -hmm. presentations, for example, or a talk playfulness as well. 
and there is a fallback into death by PowerPoint, basically. Oh God! And um, right. yeah, and people starting to switch off. And you said something very important. That is, we are natural storytellers. Where does it get lost on the way? And how can we reconnect with it? I think you have already shared now one example how you could, right. but perhaps you have a few more top tips. Well, you hire a brilliant facilitator, first off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Noticing, noticed. <laughs> I am blushing, I know. I can see myself. <laughs> But the, but um, uh, this is, uh, for instance, um, every every meeting I start with our guiding principles, and they they put up the guardrails, right? So that so that again, it comes down to the sort of theory of constraints. It's like why do we why do we time box these these sessions to do? Uh, to do ideation. It's like, oh, I don't have enough time to come up with ideas. I'm like, well, it'll help focus you. So I think um, I think there is the training and practice element that we take for granted. When I say we're natural storytellers, true. Some are at inception better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like when people think about TED Talks, oh, they're so incredible. They're so, you know, how do those people just get up there and do that? Well, you submit and then you spend weeks going over your talk with the TED Talk people. So I think there is kind of getting an understanding of what it means to tell a story, you know, understand there are different types of stories and their purpose and their intent, and then the practicing. So yeah, that, that that first cut at a death by PowerPoint deck um, should never be the only time that it's reviewed and edited is so yeah so it's there's no foul there's no harm no foul in asking for qualified opinions and treaching teaching and training and so on and so forth again if you if if you can um get over the sense of egos being hurt because all that information yes it's very important but context what's our context <laughs> Well, it leads us actually nicely again back to design thinking. Do you understand the context? Do you understand the stakeholders? Who are you in service of? Right. Right? So yeah. the, those foundations really that are being covered here again as well. Yeah, yeah. You will you will see uh, there is great consistency in my thinking, I think, uh, across <laughs> across the board. Hey, Dean, before uh, we let you go, would you mind sharing with the audience where they can find out more about you, the work you are doing, the book you uh, co-created um, with your friends? Let us know. Sure. Um, the um, simplest place to find more about me in order to gain more trust would be look at look me up on LinkedIn. I do contribute some uh, of uh my thoughts on these areas uh, and small posts uh, and reactions to things. Um, I have a website called uh, vizworld.com. It's my garden is not tended well, but there is um, a variety of content there, which focuses on the wide smattering of applied visual thinking across many different things, education, product services, uh, so on and so forth. Those are probably the two of the easiest ways to to find to find me and some of my thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book the book is titled "The World of Visual Facilitation," subtitled "Unlock Your Power to Connect People and Ideas." And it was as a group. There were fifty two of us as, as authors, and um, the publishing of it was actually kind of a combined effort as well. So. I think there might be a link to it from Amazon, but as I say, look up the world of visual facilitation first to see where to find a copy. There's the big print, oh, and print version, huge. the monster print version. There's also a digital, a digital version, but um, it's meant to be a reference, not a straight read through. Yeah, 
And it has loads of wonderful examples of the visuals as inspiration um, and for you really to take away. So we are going to post it obviously on the show notes as well. So feel free to look it up there too. Dean, it's been a pleasure talking to you and getting some insights into your thinking, your design and innovative thinking. Thank you so much for being here with us. My great, great pleasure to spend this time with you. Thank you. And to all of you out there, I can't wait to hear about your stories of playfulness and how you are being brave and iterated. Let us know by sharing it with us either on um, the podcast webpage or via email in the traditional sense, or as Dean highlighted so nicely on LinkedIn too. So share your success stories with us and we can't wait to hear from you. Have a wonderful week and speak to you very soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.